all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. Good morning, and thanks for joining me today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we are fully in the middle of Heart Month. Um, February is Heart Month, and I thought one of the best ways to have a show focused around heart health is to go through some heart health headlines. You know, I like to uh, spend a little time on the internet to see what is um, being pushed out um, as far as headlines in media, because those are the questions I get from patients in clinic, and so I wanted to go through some of those with you guys today. And while we wait on callers to join us today, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell is going to help me start talking about these headlines. First of all, Josie, I'd like to say heart health headlines that's a good tongue twister for a broadcaster to warm up with in the morning it is it is and every time i typed it today i wrote heart health guidelines and was then confused as to why i was not getting the results that i wanted so it's it's definitely a twister for your tongue and when you're typing (laughs) all right so headline number one is monitoring lesser known numbers in a blood screening can help heart health so the question is what numbers are important for heart health Well, and this headline kind of immediately drew my attention because there are a set of numbers that I immediately think about in terms of what I want patients to know about their heart health. And I wanted to know if these were any any different. And there were some on this list that were a little less traditional when we think about heart health. They make complete sense to me as a clinician, but I think it's a good time to kind of highlight some of those. Before I get into those, I do want to make sure that we talk about what the the common ones are that we should be knowing um, about our heart health. And the first one is your blood pressure. Uh, we did a recent show on hypertension or high blood pressure. If you didn't get a chance to, to listen to that, you can uh, download it as a podcast uh, just by searching for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting platform. Um, but knowing your blood pressure is a really important um, way to stay on top of your heart health. And that normal blood pressure is going to be less than 120 over less than 80 is a textbook normal blood pressure. The next number that we tend to think about with heart health is your cholesterol and knowing what your cholesterol numbers are. Cholesterol panels, when we have those done at our healthcare provider's office, usually give us four numbers. They give us our total cholesterol, our HDL, which is our happy or good cholesterol, our LDL, which is our lousy or bad cholesterol, and then triglycerides. So each one of those is important to know. 
some type of measurement of your blood sugar, whether that be a fasting uh, finger stick that tells us just what your glucose is or what I usually prefer, um, a hemoglobin A1C, which is that three-month average of your blood sugar. While that is not necessarily a uh, what we would think of as a heart measurement, having an elevated blood sugar or diabetes does increase our risk for heart disease. So that's why it's on the list. Knowing either your body mass index or what I prefer, your waist circumference, um, as a measure of um, your weight and why I like the waist circumference a little bit better is body mass index has some limitations to it in terms of where you're carrying your weight and whether that weight is actual muscle or adipose tissue, fat tissue, and that can make a, a difference. But we do know that heart health is more uh, or heart disease is more closely linked to if we carry a lot of that weight around our midsection. Um, so waist fr- circumference there. And then your sleep numbers and knowing what your sleep duration is as well as your quality are our numbers because we should be getting that seven to nine hours of sleep. Josie, let me jump in here with a follow-up question. You mentioned the three-month average, the A1C. Mm-hmm. So you have to go in three months to draw blood, or how do they do that? Yeah, so it's it's a regular blood draw, just like if when you're getting your cholesterol done. It can be drawn at the exact same time, just a little different color tube that we draw that blood in. But the beauty of the hemoglobin A1C test is that you don't have to be fasting for that. Um, if I'm just going to do a little finger stick on you and check your blood sugar, or even draw blood and check just your blood sugar, where you are in regards to food matters. If you have just eaten, your blood sugar is going to be high. And if it was in, you know, an hour to two hours of that, it's going to make it really hard for me to interpret that result. I need to know what it is when you haven't had anything to eat. And if you've got an afternoon appointment, sometimes that can be a little bit hard to to fast all the way to the afternoon uh, to do that. And, and what, how I like to think about the difference between a, a blood glucose or a blood sugar check and a hemoglobin A1C is that blood sugar uh, test is like taking a picture. It's what your blood sugar is right this second. The hemoglobin A1C is like the movie. It gives me, a, you know, a, a, the uh, expanded documentary form of what is going on with your blood sugar. And that just lets me get a little bit um, clearer picture of what you're doing when you're not in the office with me in terms of uh, how well your blood sugar is being managed. Now, some of those other numbers that we want uh, that that were in this specific headline uh, were things like hemoglobin. And you may go, why hemoglobin in terms of uh, heart health? Well, your hemoglobin is what carries oxygen around in your body. And so if you're low on hemoglobin, you're not able to carry as much oxygen, you may have more fatigue, but that's also going to make your heart work a little bit harder, especially during exercise. Um, This particular article also talked about knowing your kidney and your liver numbers, which again is really important. The kidneys and the heart are so kind of intimately linked between each other. Sometimes we think about um, 
kidney disease causing high blood pressure, but sometimes it's the other way around. Our high blood pressure kind of puts extra strain on our kidneys and can cause the kidney issues. So in particular, looking at your creatinine level, which is a blood test, again, just a regular routine blood test can tell us a lot about your kidney function there, as well as your liver function. And that directly relates to something called fatty liver, which is when we start to get some um, deposits of fat within our liver. That means our liver is not going to work as well as we want it to. It also points to some other metabolic issues like insulin resistance that I've talked about on the show. Um, So knowing what your AST and ALT are, those are two liver enzymes, and if those are elevated, kind of talking with your provider about what the possible causes of that may be. And then the two uh, cholesterol numbers that they recommend looking at based on this article were something called the non-HDL cholesterol. So if you remember back to the beginning when I gave you the the parts of a cholesterol panel, the HDL is that good cholesterol um, that we want to be a little bit higher. And so the way you actually get the number for non-HDL cholesterol is you just take your total cholesterol number and you subtract out what your HDL is, and that gives you your non-HDL um, cholesterol, and that should be less than 130 for the majority of folks. And some of the reasons why we feel like this is a, some people feel like this is a little bit better test is, again, it's not impacted based off of whether you've eaten or not, whereas your triglycerides uh, can be impacted based off of food. And then something called uh, lipoprotein A, which gets a, a fair amount of press around that, and it's it has to do with some different particle sizes of the different um Uh, lipids. But the thing with lipoprotein A is it is genetically determined. So there's very little I can do in terms of a lifestyle um, perspective to alter this level. So it is more closely associated with genetic forms of high cholesterol or familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, But it can help us judge heart risk and um, determine how we best want to lower your cardiac risk from a multitude of other different ways. So those were some interesting additional lab tests to think about there. Um, Why don't we go ahead and sneak in this caller that we have on the line here. Uh, We're going to go to Madison and say good morning to John before we take our first break. John, how can we help you? Hey, uh, I had a quick question. You know, I've heard all along that you need seven to nine hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. Now that I have the fitness app that kind of analyzes my sleep every night, uh, it shows that I'm I'm awake as much as an hour or so a night. Just mm. I pop awake, and so is the. Do we count the awake time and the trying to get say eight hours, or do we? Or now is it really seven hours we're looking for? Yeah, so that that little bit of time that you're talking about there actually has an abbreviation called uh, WASO or WASO, which is awake after sleep onset. And so that we do want to take a look at that and see how much of that time um, is eating into that restful seven to nine hours that we're looking at, because 
you may be it may be impacting the amount of time you spend in the other sleep stages. So it's definitely something we'd want to look at and say what's waking us up uh, during that point in time. Is it pain? Is it needing to go to the bathroom? Is it sleep apnea? What's going on in that period of time that is impacting that? And then also knowing that most of our home monitors for sleep are going to be based on um, a, a wrist measurement, usually from like a Fitbit or some kind of smart watch that's on there. Um, and that can, while it's great, can be a little bit not as accurate uh, as some of the other, you know, more in-depth in-lab testing that we're going to do there. So it's not necessarily always pointing to a problem, but should prompt a little bit further evaluation of that. All right, John. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for giving me a call today. Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at UMMC. And today we are doing Heart Health Headlines in honor of Heart Health Month. And while we're waiting on callers to join us, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell is helping me go through these headlines. All right, Josie, headline number two. I've got my fingers crossed on this one, and I really hope it is true. The, yes. he- the headline is, laughter really is good for the heart, study fine. So can this actually be true? It is, and it made me so happy. So if you've listened before, you know that whenever I see something that says study finds, I always go, where's the study? I'm going to need to see it and take a look at it and see, you know, kind of what's going on there. I, I did pull this, and the only, it's, I could not find the full article. It was an abstract that had been submitted to the European Heart Journal, um, which is a well-respected journal, so we've, we've got that on our side. And when I looked at this, uh, it, it was a randomized control trial. So if you've listened to our medical studies um, show before, you'll know that's kind of the, the top uh, of medical studies and looking at, at those. And then we can go kind of one step higher and take a bunch of those together and put them in something called a meta-analysis and get a whole bunch more data on it. But randomized control trials are very well um, done. The next thing I often look at is what's the, the sample size? Was this a lot of people or a little bit of people? Uh, this one was a little bit of people. So 26 people um, and they followed them for 12 weeks. Okay, So three months, small size. And they did split them into two groups, 13 in kind of the treatment group and 13 in the control group. And what the interventions were, were uh, either two self-selected comedies per week or two um, non-comedy kind of documentaries uh, per week for the 12 weeks. So 24 shows uh, in both groups. And this was a group of people who had coronary artery disease. And what they were trying to, to look at was, is this going to be helpful as part of cardiac rehab. So cardiac rehab is often something that people get put into after they've had a cardiac event, usually a heart attack or some type of um, coronary artery bypass surgery, something like that, usually focuses heavily on Uh, your physical activity and getting your um, breathing better, your endurance better, those types of things. And so those are the outcomes they looked at here. They looked at, did it make a difference in your VO2 max? So essentially your your oxygen capacity, how much oxygen you're able to, you have available for use during uh, activity. They also looked at vascular function. So did it make your blood vessels relax more? And then did it decrease inflammatory markers? 
markers, right? So things that would increase inflammation, which often drives heart disease. And they did find that. The folks that watched the comedies had better oxygen usage, had better vascular function, and had less inflammatory markers. So again, a very small study, uh, but it was done well. And when when I, as a clinician, am looking at something like this, and I always go, what's the risk benefit on this? You know, if I'm going to offer this option to someone, and this is pretty low risk. Just asking you to watch a, a comedy is, is pretty low risk, especially in terms of folks who may be um, higher risk for heart disease. So I was excited about this one. So uh, I'm prescribing some laughter in your day for your heart health there. So a really cool, um, interesting little study. And I look forward to seeing it kind of replicated in bigger, uh, bigger studies so that we can increase the power of that particular study there. All right, before we get to our next headline, let's go to Horn Lake and say good morning, David. How can I help you? Uh, I got a question. Um, I had a uh uh, it's a two-part question. Okay. Uh, and it's multiple, multiple phase of one. Uneducated layman, TIA, mini-stroke, transic mm-hmm. isometric attack, uh, uh, what are the warning signs and symptoms of having one? Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm inquiring was I had a visual episode where with my eyes completely closed, I could see a bright white uh, as uh, Broadly, as a broad, broadly not accurate description, a kind mm-hmm. of a rectangle box with a black dot in the center mm-hmm. of it, with my eyes closed. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's all I could see. Yeah. I mean, and it lasted for several minutes, mm-hmm. and then it disappeared. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 it, would that be a, uh, a symptom or, or one of the symptoms of having a TIA mini stroke attack or whatever? And if so, since uh, if if the symptoms I described may be a possible, uh, that may be one of the causes of it, since I've already had one, and way I understand it, it it's a short, small blood clot that clears up on its own. How do you test for it after it's already happened? What, how, what kind of tests in, or screens or whatever to which you go through to screen see if what that condition is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, that was great. It's a mouthful. It was a mouthful. So, TIA, transient ischemic attack, is essentially a, a interruption in blood flow that only lasts for a short amount of time, blood flow to the brain. And so a lot of the, the symptoms between a TIA and a stroke can be very similar, things like weakness, facial drooping, dizziness, slurred speech, and even some changes in vision as well. They usually only last a short period of time, and they resolve, and you don't really have lasting deficits from that. Um, one of the the best things to do is if you have any of those symptoms is always go in and get seen about because having a TIA can increase the risk of having a full stroke um, on down the road. Now, the symptoms that you're describing there, while they're visual changes and absolutely could be part of, you know, a a TIA-like attack, could be something else entirely. Um, The fact that when you close your eyes, you still see that tells me it's kind of neurological. You know, it's not like something on your eye or anything like that, but it sounds very similar um, to uh, what some people have as an aura with a migraine. We call those a scotoma. Um, they could also uh, be problems with the retina uh, on the back of your eye, those types of things. So the 
first thing is to get in either with your primary care provider or an uh, ophthalmologist to have them look in your eye and see if there's anything going on there. In terms of looking, you know, can you look back and see if a TIA has occurred? That one's a little bit trickier because the blood flow interruption usually doesn't last long enough that you see kind of lasting deficits there. But sometimes we can see little um, minor infarcts. So again, seeing your healthcare provider for that um, to get a good evaluation from a neurological standpoint is going to be the next is going to be the first step that you need to take there. Well, uh, let me ask one more sure. question. My family history is my my father had Parkinson's. Okay. My mother had uh, Alzheimer's dementia, mm-hmm. and then I had a sister who had multiple sclerosis. Mm-hmm. Is there a uh, uh, like a DNA neurological screening to see whether or not I have a defective gene, or uh, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. if, you have a, uh, if you have a very strong family history of neurological diseases, is there a uh, um, preventative screening or a DNA-type deal or a test or whatever to predict the outcomes of that, or, or do you have any info on that? Yeah, so the kind of three disorders that you mentioned there, while all neurological in nature would not, usually have a kind of a single genetic mutation that would lead to those because they are different. Um, Knowing that you've got a stronger family history of neurological issues does make me want you to get in and be seen by a neurologist um, just for a good evaluation. But I would start with your primary care provider. But there's unlikely to be a single genetic issue um, that would would go into place there. But what you're describing is something called a genogram or a pedigree that we would do where we would trace um, conditions through your family history to see if there were any things that kind of flagged out as um, being a higher uh, risk there. One more question, and I'll and I'll leave you alone. You're uh, fine. Uh, uh, well, uh, I'm 68. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 would you recommend me seeing a doctor that that has specific training in ger- a geriatric trained doctor? Uh, I uh, love geriatric doctors, especially if you're on, uh, you know, if you're on a fair bit of medicine, those types of things. A geriatric provider is great. I have my mom seeing a geriatric provider. If you have access to one, that's a wonderful place to start. If not. Your regular family medicine or internal medicine doctors should be able um, to get you where you need to be, but a geriatric provider is wonderful. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for giving us a call today. All right. I think we've got time for one more headline. What you got, Kevin? All right. We actually get three for the price of one on this next one. (laughs) The first one is quick action and CPR saves seventh grader in cross-country race. The next one, NBA hopeful's heart stopped on the court. CPR and an AED saved his life. And the third one, days after writing a story about CPR, reporter used it on her dad. So one question, a quick question, an AED, is that a defibrillator? It is. It's um, an automated external defibrillator. So you often see them on the wall in places. It'll have like a little... uh, looks like an electric uh, lightning bolt um, on those. And that's what those are for. Um, They're relatively easy to use. It is part of um, CPR training. If you go and get CPR certified, you um, learn how to use those. And usually whenever you see one of those on site, that means somebody in the area is trained uh, on how to use those as well. But they are a game changer in terms of um, increasing out of hospital survival from cardiac arrests. All right. So tell us about CPR. Well, you know, these three headlines all caught my eye because they all point to a deficit that we have in terms of people responding to 
to victims that may need uh, CPR. So the first one was a seventh grader in a cross-country race. He had asthma uh, and uh, was doing well. And then his dad kind of noticed he wasn't uh, wasn't with the pack that he was before. So dad went uh, looking for him and, and found him uh, down on the trail. And he had had an asthma attack. His lips were blue. It led to cardiac arrest. Luckily, there was a nurse uh, there that was also watching her child. And she had immediately started CPR there for him. Um, with the NBA hopeful, this was a 25-year-old in uh, on the basketball court playing and lost consciousness at that point in time. And it was actually not a nurse that started CPR on him. It was just a bystander that had been trained in CPR. And then a nurse uh, was also there who got the AED machine and was able to uh, initiate some uh, some shocks and get that heart back to going. And then uh, the third was actually a reporter who uh, did a story on the different uh, songs that you can use to help keep you on beat and rhythm when you're doing CPR and she was able to use that on uh, on her dad just a couple of days after that. And so when we look at CPR, we see kind of the commercialized version of that when we see it in movies and television and those kinds of things. And that is just not how it goes. Um, they are not pushing deep enough and they are not pushing fast enough um, for those different kinds of things. And we kind of have a, a notion of CPR as starting with mouth-to-mouth breathing and then chest compressions. And that is actually the, the way that we were taught for a very long period of time. And one of the barriers to people doing CPR on folks, one was a little bit of fear of doing the, the mouth-to-mouth component of it. And so you know, newer research has come on board that just doing hands-only or compression-only CPR is shown to increase survival for folks uh, because that first few minutes after something happens, while we're waiting on um, somebody more experienced or the EMS to get here, is a really crucial period of time to get that blood circulating around to that individual's brain and all his other organs. So only about 40 people 40% of people who have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest actually get the immediate CPR that they need. So there's a big need for us to be able to do that. Um, And having that done either doubles or triples your chance of survival from um, from that cardiac arrest. So it really is important. And so in an effort to kind of decrease some of those barriers while making sure that we're still doing evidence-based practice, meaning that hands-only CPR is effective, uh, we wanted uh, to make sure that it's accessible for everyone. So everyone can do hands-only CPR, and it's only two steps. That's the other barrier is people go, oh, it's, it's going to be confusing. I don't know how to do it. Two steps, call 911 so that we can get advanced help on the way, and then push hard and fast in the center of the chest to a beat of a familiar song because we're trying to get it to somewhere between 100 and 120 beats per minute. And so that would be really hard to do to try and time it out on your watch and still do effective compressions. So in the middle of the chest, in between the breasts, with your hands hard and fast, 100 to 120 beats per minute. And some of the best songs for that are Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. So you just sing it in your head. Um, if you're a Beyonce fan, Crazy in Love also is around that um, particular uh, beat. And then my personal favorite, Hips Don't Lie by Shakira. Um, that also is the right beat. So whichever one you, uh, speak, spark, um, uh, you enjoy, just sing that along in your head. Um, 911. 
hard and fast in the middle of the chest to one of those songs there is a great way to help increase survival of folks outside of the hospital who need CPR. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMC, and we are talking um, all about heart health uh, for Heart Month, and we are doing that by going through some headlines that are out there related to heart health. We talked about hands-only CPR and why that's so important. And before we dive into the next headline, I do want to share a website with you if you are wanting to learn a little bit more about hands-only CPR. There is a very short 90-second video that you can watch that really goes through the steps of doing that, which they're pretty simple, right? Call 911 and then uh, press hard and fast in the middle of the chest to your favorite uh, upbeat song like Staying Alive or Hips Don't Lie. Um, But that website is Heart. Dot org backslash hands only CPR kind of all one word there and that will get you uh, get you that access to that video so that you can learn a little bit more about that hands only CPR all right we also have a caller on the line so before we dig into the next headline we'll go to Jackson and say good morning Larry how can I help you good morning good morning um, I have my HCM hypertrophic cardiomyopathy mm-hmm. I know what it is I'm mm-hmm. familiar with it yep because you know I have uh, and I hear on TV sometimes commercial where they say obstructive mm-hmm. HCM. What do they mean by obstructive HCM and what is different from what I have? Yeah, so there are different types of, of kind of cardiomyopathy or um, uh, and some are um, – Related to some type of um, obstruction where the the heart muscle starts to get thicker. Some are post uh, viral or post infection. Some of them occur when you are um, uh, after during or after pregnancy as well. And then some are idiopathic, meaning we don't necessarily know the reason behind um, those types of things. So it's just a kind of another designation or classification of those that leads back to kind of the underlying issue that was going on. Or, or causing that particular type of um, of cardiomyopathy. Yeah, what, what caused mine? I know it's, it was uh, untreated hypertension. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talk. Yeah, and we talk about that a lot. We actually talked about it in our last hypertension show, um, because when you make that heart, when the heart muscle has to work a little bit harder, it can it gets thickened. And while we like bigger muscles in our arms and our legs, a thicker heart muscle doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily what we're. striving for because it can do a couple of different things one if it is thicker on the interior portion of the heart then that decreases the uh, size of the little rooms in the heart and so you don't get as much uh, blood flow you don't get as much blood inside those rooms that we then squish out to the body. So you start to get some heart failure symptoms that way. Um, or the, the heart is just weakened. The muscles, uh, the bigger muscle is not necessarily strong. It's just bigger fibers, and it doesn't pump as strongly or as effectively there. Mm-hmm. All right, okay. Larry. Thank you so much Thank for giving so us much. a call. Have a blessed day. You're welcome. Thanks you have a blessed day. Thank you. All right, Kevin, what's next on our headline list? All right, so Josie, earlier we said that laughing was good. This is another hopeful here. Got my fingers <laughs> crossed again. Is dark chocolate good for you? Should we be adding it to our diet? Well, you know, at least I made you happy with one of them today. So laughter, yes, dark chocolate. It's not bad for you, right? But 
it's not magic, right? And I've said that on the show before. There's there's no magic food. And just simply adding one of these foods to your diet is not going to dramatically uh, improve your heart health or reduce your risk of any of these other kinds of things. Whenever I see headlines, there's always some like nugget of truth in there somewhere that led to this headline. And so what what is the hype around dark chocolate? And essentially, we're talking about flavanols is where um, the, the notion that dark chocolate gets has health benefits comes from. And so what is a flavanol? Well, it is basically an antioxidant or an anti-inflammatory type component to food. Um, flavanols in particular um, have been linked to helping your blood vessels relax. So that's good for blood pressure, right? When our blood vessels are relaxed, our heart isn't having to work quite as hard um, to push that blood around. And so our blood pressure tends to be a little bit better control. It also... Um, Usually, uh, when we think about blood vessels relaxing, better blood flow to the brain, so better cognition and memory and decreased risks of dementia and those types of things. Um, So that's the the flavanol um, component of that. Now, when we look at dark chocolate, how are those two things linked? Well, cocoa beans are very high in flavanols, but we don't eat the, the cocoa bean. If you just noshed on that, you would not be super happy with me because it's not mixed with um, sugars and um, fats and, and kind of refined out to make it what we tend to think of in terms of, of chocolate. And the processing of cocoa beans or cacao beans um, significantly reduces the, the flavanol com- component of that. So there, uh, the research around these now are not even so much researching around chocolate. It's researching around the flavanol component um, and looking at flavanol in uh, supplement form uh, and, and giving you actual um, cacao extract and those types of things in supplement. And there have been some um, studies that point to some improvements in cardiovascular health and, and neurovascular health and those types of things. Uh, but getting back to uh, the the actual question is dark chocolate good for you? We should be thinking of any chocolate as a treat, right? Not something that we are adding in our diet for um, purposeful health gains. If you like dark chocolate, sure. Um, but just switching the same amount of milk chocolate to dark chocolate is not going to produce really a statistically significant difference in the amount of flavanols that you're getting there um, because it is still a calorically dense food. So while dark chocolate does have a significant, um, significantly less sugar than, than milk chocolate, which is the most common form of chocolate that Americans consume, it is still a lot, still about um, 24 grams of added sugar uh, in um, a, a candy in a bar size of dark chocolate so that's that's about all the added sugar you need in a day so uh, I wouldn't recommend adding a dark chocolate bar just for heart health um, it does also have more caffeine in it than milk chocolate does so if you're sensitive to caffeine or you've been told to limit caffeine by your health care provider dark chocolate does have uh, much more than that one of the benefits we do see with dark chocolate is it tends to be more satiating meaning you don't need to eat as much of it to feel full and satisfied so you know in looking at it that way if chocolate is really something you enjoy but you tend to overconsume it switch into a dark chocolate you may find that you need less of that to get kind of get your chocolate fix and, and feel full and satisfied there 
Um, what we want to think about is that there are other foods that are much higher in flavanols than dark chocolate. And the ones that we normally think about, or the one that we normally think about is wine, like red wine. That's also why there's kind of all the hype around red wine for heart health. It's still fairly low um, on in the, the flavanol uh, spectrum of things, especially when thinking about us needing somewhere around 400 milligrams of flavanols a day. Um, that bar of dark chocolate is only 19 uh, milligrams, so you would have to eat lots of chocolate um, to, to get there. And the red wine is somewhere around that, that general uh, amount as well. Uh, the, the biggest bang for your buck in terms of flavanol uh, components in food is green tea. So a one cup of kind of brewed green tea uh, is going to get you 319 milligrams of flavanols. So way more than your dark chocolate. Uh, your red wine is 17 milligrams, so kind of on par with your dark chocolate there. Uh, so uh, an unsweetened green tea would be a much bigger bang for your buck in terms of getting that, that anti-inflammatory um, or antioxidant uh, food item in there. Um, if you do want to enjoy your chocolate, think of it that way, again, as something that you're going to have a small amount of and really appreciate and savor the way I'm a, I'm a chocolate girl. I love it. I love dark chocolate. I like that bitter kind of bite to it. So I always make sure my chocolate has about 70%, um, at least 70% um, cacao in it. So it's going to be it's going to have a little bitter bite to it, but pairing it with a fruit that's also rich in flavanols is going to help me get more of that antioxidant content there. Um, we tend to think about berries as being a great source of that, and they are. Um, so your blackberries, raspberries, strawberries, all of those are going to have good um, flavanol components in them, but an apple also has flavanols. So fruits that you enjoy with a little small amount of dark chocolate are a great way to get um, that, that antioxidant in there. Um, and if you follow me on social media, you probably saw my Thanksgiving dessert that I brought, which was a raspberry. And the hole in the end of a raspberry is the perfect size for a chocolate chip. So I stuffed each one of those little raspberries with a dark chocolate chip. And it was just like having little antioxidant bundles on my Thanksgiving table there. So take home is uh, if you enjoy dark chocolate, absolutely keep enjoying it in moderation. Um, but there's no reason to specifically add it to your diet. We want to have a variety of fruits and vegetables to help us get our antioxidant content there. Thanks for joining us today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Josie Bidwell, and we've been talking all about heart health today. We are in the last segment of the show. We, I think we've got time for one more headline. Kevin, what you got for me? This one says, intermittent fasting linked to greater risk of dying from heart disease. So we usually hear about intermittent fasting being good. So what's the deal here? Well, you know, this is a kind of a classic example of does the study match what the headline says? And so when I really got into the meat of this particular study, it, and it's by one of my favorite uh, kind of organizations, the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So the folks that do are registered dietitian nutritionists. Um, but what it was looking at was a variety of things. But basically meal skipping was what this was looking at. And it was looking at was there 
an increased risk of heart disease in folks who skip meals. Did the meal that we skipped matter uh, and that type of thing. So that's not really what intermittent fasting is. And what I see in clinical practice is the confusion there. You know, I'll be working with a, a new patient and I'll start to do their dietary recall and they'll tell me, well, I'm doing intermittent fasting. And then when we we talk through it, they're really not. They're just skipping meals. Uh, and so intermittent fasting is just a shortened feeding window. So you're still getting the appropriate number of calories and the appropriate amount of, of kind of spacing between those meals and good quality calories just in a, a shortened uh, time frame. But just skipping a meal uh, is is not intermittent fasting because what usually happens is we overconsume uh, calories at our next meal or we snack throughout the day uh, and don't even really kind of perceive that as eating. But what this particular uh, study looked at, actually, was what did skipping breakfast do to our overall health? And skipping breakfast was linked to a much higher risk of death from heart disease um, than uh, even if you skipped lunch or dinner. So um, they also found that folks who eat only one meal per day are more likely to die from a multitude of things than those who have more daily meals. And again, I see this so often in, in clinic when I'm working with folks and I do that dietary recall, a lot of folks are only eating one meal per day. And I think that that is partially due from kind of the old notion of calories in, calories out, and that really the only thing that mattered in terms of, of, of weight loss was that we took in less calories uh, than we needed. And so that tells our brain, well, if I want to lose weight, I should just not eat. Uh, but that's that's not what is all going on. Um, there's a whole lot of other um, factors that play into uh, our weight and how we uh, process those different things. And so having only one meal per day, while also is not an effective weight loss strategy, looks like it also significantly uh, increases your risk for um, uh, for what we call all-cause mortality, meaning dying from any, any particular thing. Uh, but in this particular um, study, they did find that the meals that you skip matter as well. So breakfast is a really important meal. So uh, your mom was right when she said breakfast is the most important meal of the day, although that was some brilliant marketing um, there too. Uh, so that's why it's always important to dig a little bit deeper in terms of your uh, headlines and what the actual study is saying there. All right, I do think we have time uh, very quickly to go talk to Mikey and Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. How can we help you? Hey, um, this is a crossover question from gardening, which I know you also know a whole lot about, <laughs> uh, to to nutrition. Right, and it, it's a that's why I'm calling you. All righty, <laughs> beauty expert. Uh, tomatoes have been classified as berries. Yep. Okay, so how do tomatoes fit into this nutritional thing that you were talking about, about berries? Yeah. So and chocolate. And all. Yeah. So tomatoes and chocolate, hey, I haven't tried it yet, but I might. 
I don't think that sounds delicious, but I'm not going to um, yuck anybody who likes that because uh, food is very particular. I haven't tried it. Yeah. I'm going to see. Yeah. So <laughs> technically, tomatoes are berries. Um, it has to go with, uh, you know, where their seeds are and you know, the single flower and, and all these grow. different. Yeah, all yeah. these different kinds of things. So technically, they are berry. Um, tomatoes are high in a variety of nutrients that we need more of. Um, they're a great source of lycopene. They're also a great source of other antioxidants as well. So they, if you enjoy them, uh, absolutely can have a great spot on your plate in terms of being low in calorie and great um, micronutrient and antioxidant content there. Um, If you have tried it with chocolate and you like that, that is fine. Um, I'm probably not going to try that. But uh, if you want to try it and you let me know about it, that will be just fine. Okay, well, I'll call it micro- Josie, okay, if it turns out well, okay? Absolutely, absolutely. Mikey and Mobile, take care. All right, Mikey, thank you so much for that. Bye. Bye. All right, guys. These are always such uh, fun shows to do there. Kevin, any kind of parting comments for us on our headline show? Well, I was going to say, if you want to learn more about tomatoes, search the internet for Ed Said Tomatoes, and you'll hear, uh, you'll see a nice about five-minute video about tomatoes. And now I'll be singing that song the rest of the day. I love Ed Said. He's got such catchy um, ways to make us think about our fruits and vegetables. All right, guys, you've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, which is a production of MPB Radio. We're on every weekday at 11, so be sure to tune in for that full Southern Remedy lineup. If you want to go back and listen to today's show or catch any of our shows, be sure to subscribe to our podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app. You can always send me an email as well. That address is fit at mpbonline.org. I'm Josie Bidwell, and this has been Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.